from the boardroom to the shop floor. Good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Mbele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. A very good evening to you and uh, welcome to uh, tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, it is my pleasure to have you on board and thanks for sharing space and time with us as we continue our journey of entrenching inclusive corporate government value system, particularly in a depressed market um, situation thanks to COVID-19 and a host of other issues. Uh, moving on swiftly, you might recall in our conversation last week, we had a very interesting uh, discussions with Nesrin Mani, who is the executive director at a Global Apprenticeship Network based in Switzerland, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, I think the interview went very well in that we have learned quite a lot in terms of how again, uh, global empowers people, businesses by promoting and advocating for uptake of web-based learning, which include apprenticeship as a way of addressing the mismatch between skills, people, and and skills and employers' needs. Talking of that, that's something that uh, South Africa is grappling with. We know that there's a huge mismatch between what the industry needs and what uh, our institution of higher learning are producing. So from that end, I thought the conversation really had value in terms of how, again, a Network Global is actually trying to uh, bridge the gap or the mismatch. And I certainly hope, um, you know, the part that be who have been fortunate enough to listen to, to the conversation are heeding the call on what are the best practices uh, based on what um, the Global Apprenticeship Network is actually doing. If you missed that particular episode, not to worry. Uh, you simply download uh, the web, that particular website, at our, um, the podcast at our website, which is www.hi.com. And let me know exactly what are your thoughts are in relation to what you have picked up, particularly as it relates to, you know, your work environment and the extent to which you are closing the gap between what your requirements are and what the institution of higher learning are producing. The more we have dialogue, the more we have, the more we have conversation about these pertinent issues, the better. Uh, let me t- let me hear your thoughts uh, via our SMS line, which is three four five one nine. The Telegram is zero six one eight nine five one zero nine five. Of course, I, I welcome your email at my email account, which is nimrod at hydrosyodoza. Uh, in terms of our menu. Uh, we often, you know, kickstart the conversation by reflecting on issues that got the country hot under its collar. Trust me, South Africa, we are not, uh, we are not out of such conversation. Everywhere you go, there is, you know, such conversation that really gets uh, tongue waggling. So we're going to start a little bit by just reflecting on that. And the second item on the agenda, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be joined, uh, online by Escha Luanda, who heads up the Corporate Governance Division at the Government Institution Pension Fund, uh, which is the largest retirement fund and financial services uh, in Namibia. He is also the chairperson of Namibian Air Board. Uh, I mean, Escha Luanda is a man, is a man of many, many, many uh, gifts. Uh, I, I implore you to, still, to stay tuned for our conversation is going to be around the status of corporate governance in Africa. So 
from his perspective, he's got a lot to offer uh, in terms of our own, in terms of making sense on a very complex issues around corporate governance in Africa. And some of the proactive measures based on his personal experience uh, in different you know, uh, portfolios, how he has been able to offer solutions. So stay tuned. Before we get into that particular conversation, let me do what I do uh, uh, as a norm. Let me thank Simon for a job well done. Dominique Majola, uh, thank you for giving us the update on uh, traffic there. As always, I'm not flying solo. I've got Tabo, who is a technical producer of the show, uh, also joined by Trebisa. Folks, thank you very much uh, for making sure that we are connected, particularly with our guest of honor, uh, Mr. Esther Rwanda from all the way from Namibia. Um, as I have indicated earlier, uh, a quick reflection in terms of issues that got the country uh, thinking and talking. Uh, what do you make of Susan Daniels' testimony uh, at the Zondo Commission, wherein she admitted that um, she's, you know, in her tenure as the head of legal, um, was, you know, able to sign off a legal cost, which amounted almost 800000 towards uh, Dr. Ngubani's legal cost. We know that uh, Dr. Ngubani you know, has been fingered in so many instances about mismanagement of ESCO. What do you make of that? It will be interesting just to hear your thoughts, but it's also interesting to see how uh, men and women are coming forward um, just to reflect on their own personal experiences, on, on some of the their own contribution, um, whether coerced uh, or not, but their own contribution, their own thoughts as to how they've contributed towards uh, mismanagement or towards the environment that was quite toxic uh, at Eston. But anyway, um, it's it's quite interesting. We just got to see the, the 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 depth and breadth of that particular testimony. Uh, anyway, my my job is just to reflect on these issues. You make up your mind as to what does that really mean. The other issue that I want to quickly reflect on, which I think is quite useful, the hawks are. Gradually, you know, the claws of the hawks, in my view, are being sharpened daily. Uh, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure the, in, you know, the investors are taking note of these developments, um, because the, the, there has been, uh, a, almost a cut of impunity, which resulted in the investors saying, you know, how can you invest in an environment where, uh, there's a cut of impunity where people are literally looting and nothing happens? But if what has happened in at Etekuni is anything to go by, uh, wherein uh, there's been a raid uh, uh, in some of the properties, which amounted to almost 700 you know, million rents, is anything to go by, then I think this country is definitely turning in standing the tide. We need to applaud these kind of initiatives because they are gradually you know, providing that level of confidence that we all need uh, in the country because uh, without investor confidence, we're not, we're not going to crowd in investment. So um, part of the preconditions of a successful investment destination is the rule of law. Now, with these kinds of developments, we, go up, we, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can become somehow confident that uh, the rule of law, the tide on the rule of law is it's emerging, and that's something that it, that needs to be, you know, applauded. 
the last point that really that I found astonishing, you know, if not annoying, um, is the strike by the the the, the mortuary workers in Gauteng and throughout the country. How has this impacted on your plans to bury your loved ones? I mean, the excuse from you know these folks is that they are not fighting uh, uh, us as clients, but they're fighting government. But if you fight in government, you deny me the opportunity to bury my loved ones. Why are you making us collateral damage? Take up your fights with whoever that you want to take up your fights. Respect the rights of others. This is something that we as South Africans need to get in our heads. This whole point of intimidation is getting out of control because democracy, this is how democracy crumbles down. Because we don't really appreciate the sense of a discourse. We don't appreciate the sense of dialogue. People have to resort to violence to address their, you know, misgivings. You can imagine you want to bury your loved ones as if it's not bad enough that your loved one has, you know, uh, uh, unceremoniously passed on, mainly due to COVID-19 related, you know, issues. You now have to deal with this kind of nonsense wherein you are told that you can't because they decided to block even service providers who are not party to this strike. I've saw, I've saw a video clip of one of the undertakers that I won't mention name being, being, being blocked by these hooligans. Clay, I mean, we, if we need to move uh, or be taken seriously by anybody for that matter. We start need to, we need to appreciate and recognize the, the importance of rule of law and police needs to act and act swiftly, uh, on these uh, kinds of hooligans. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite, uh, anyway, you can get my grift. Moving on swiftly, uh, let me attend to the main course of a conversation with, uh, Esther Luanda, who is the seasoned, seasoned governance and ethics practitioner. As I indicated earlier, he heads up a corporate governance division at Government Institution, uh, Institution Pension Fund, uh, which is the largest retirement fund uh, and financial services in Namibia. He also chair, he's also chairperson of N Namibia. Uh, and I, like I said, when I started off, our conversation with HR is going to be around the status of corporate governance in Africa. Do weigh in, please. Uh, give us your thoughts on 34519, which is our SMS line. Our telegram is 061-895-1095. On that note, let me not waste time and welcome the giant from uh, uh, Uncle Sam's uh, territory. Esha, good evening and welcome to Beyond Governance. Good evening, doctor, and good evening, listeners. Uh, great Thank pleasure you. to have you have me. Thank you very much. Uh, how is the 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 land of Uncle Sam doing this uh, on this glorious Tuesday? Uh, we're not doing bad. Obviously, everybody's concerned with uh, the impact of COVID. Uh, we've had uh, double figures today. I think less than 100 new cases, but overall still under 10,000 cases. But um, we're coping. I mean, it's become a new normal, and we, life has to go on. I couldn't agree with you more. Life has to go normal. Um, in the, the new norm, uh, as painful as it is, we just have to accept it for what it is. Uh, moving on swiftly, uh, um, Esther, 
you are a part of the African governance network. Could just perhaps maybe give us a bit of a background of this, you know, a very uh, noble initiative that brings together all the the, the Institute of, uh, of of Governance in Africa under one roof. Take us through its genesis and take us through its thought process, please. Uh, thank you very much, Doc, and uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to us this evening. Obviously, this reminds me of uh, South Africa and the continent as a whole. Uh, talking about the African Corporate Governance Network, um, of which the Namibia Institute of Corporate Governance Network is a member, um, and this is the institute of which I'm proud to be chairperson. It's uh, it's a network of um, uh, IODs and ICGs. These are Institute of Directors and the Institutes of Corporate Governance and associated institutions. Um, it's uh, like-minded Africans who came together representing the various IODs, and they decided... Um, with all the com- common features on the continent, they came together and set up a network that uh, seeks to enhance governance and ethical leadership on the continent. Um, the IODSA, which is a South African-based uh, institute of directors and arguably the biggest on the continent, is one of the founding members. Um, it's, um, it's a network that... Um, uh, connects African brothers. They have meetings twice a year. They've had conferences here and again. Uh, doctor, you attended the major conference that we had in Namibia where we attracted over 140 people. Uh, among the highlights of this conference, obviously, there was a huge uh, uh, founding event in Mauritius in 2013. It was followed by further events uh, all over the continent. We've had... Uh, uh, gatherings in Lagos, in Maputo, in Ventuk, which is uh, where I come from, Nairobi, um, Algiers, uh, um, Addis, and all the places. Uh, one of the major highlights was, of course, the production of the uh, Ernest and Young ACGN report, which featured the developments of corporate governance in the 13 founding members. It's something that one can access on their website. Um, yeah, that is it about the Africa Corporate Governance Network. Thank you very much, uh, Mesha, um, for that uh, um, very useful insight of how the African Corporate Governance Network has evolved and, and the kind of work that it does, which brings me to the next question that perhaps maybe you could just share light with us, uh, uh, sure. is, the, is the fact that when you look at corporate governance, its hallmark has always been the separation of power or the separation between ownership rights as well as the control rights. And and being the hallmark, obviously, Africa is, is is sort of gradually getting like tune or getting to terms with you know this separation. To what extent do you think we have evolved as an African continent in in as far as appreciating the hallmark of corporate governance as it relates to what are the what are the you know powers vested in a shareholder and the powers that vested in an executive? Uh, obviously, thanks for the question, and it's a very good question because. Uh it's uh, some of those things we take for granted 
obviously a shareholder level that is where the owners uh, sit. Um, as an owner, these are guys that exercise their votes at an annual general meeting. The guys that invested their much needed capital into the organization, but they don't necessarily all serve on the boards of the organizations. That is where your director sits, um, both executive and non-executive. And, uh, that is where the key decisions on a quarterly basis filtering down to on a daily basis when you start zooming into executive directors, CEOs, and C-suite executives. So it's important that one appreciates um, the relationship between control and uh, ownership. Of course, the ownership needs to exercise ownership rights, uh, whereas the guys that are charged with directing and controlling, which is your board and your executives, are expected to exercise um, the rights of uh, the role of stewardship on behalf of the shareholder, and this is where you also get the independent guys. When you have a good appreciation of uh, these two roles, um, this results uh, in sound corporate governance because, uh, like they say, um, uh, good friends is pay good neighbors. You would want to have your shareholders, despite the fact that they are the ones that have invested capital and otherwise, uh, know their place, exercise their rights and responsibilities at your annual general meeting and special members meeting, whereas you have your board and your executives exercising the responsibility of uh, directing and controlling an organization in the right manner so that um, sound governance is appreciated. I hope that clarifies the point. Thank you very much, Mesha. Talking of um, appreciation of, of, of different roles, you know, one is often confronted or one has noticed over some years this, this, uh, you know, you often hear executives that know, um, especially at the board level, non-executive director saying they were being misled by the executives, uh, which in my view often touches on the information asymmetry which means in your capacity as the board uh, member, the extent to which uh, the executives are providing useful information, um, um, you know, it's, it's quite critical because if they don't provide um, useful, uh, uh, you know, information, it makes your work very difficult. While you're still pondering on that issue, we're going to pay our bills, uh, Tabo, let's pay our bills and, and get Esther to, to, to reflect on, on that particular question. We'll come back after a break. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. It is now 28 minutes to 7. I'm having a very uh, thought-provoking conversation with Esther Luanda, who is a citizen governance and ethics practitioner. He also heads up corporate governance division at the Government Institute Pension Fund, the largest uh, retirement fund and financial services uh, in Namibia. He is also the chairperson of the Namibian uh, uh, Namibian Air, Airways. Uh, it doesn't get better than this uh, when you deal with someone who's quite knowledgeable in the space of corporate governance. Before we went to the break, um, I put to you know before I put it to to him as to what is his take around information asymmetry? Because half, more, in most instances, the board members would be given half-baked information. 
for them to make incorrect decisions. Sometimes uh, you could also argue that executives are doing out of malice or just in some instances um, it is just level of incompetence because sometimes the board doesn't know what it wants. Um, but from where you're sitting, uh, Etcher, what, what, how do you navigate this particular challenge? Uh, thanks a lot, Doc. Um, while we're taking a break, and it's good that you raised a question before we went to pay bills. Bills have got to be paid uh, during or pre or during or post-COVID. Um, I would like to quote um, another Namibian governing practitioner and consultant, but something that typifies this situation, and I quote, dysfunctional board management relationship is, is typified by the board primarily assuming a policing role and second-guessing the activities of management. Similarly, management tailors information to what they believe the board should know. End of quote. And I needed to acknowledge because it's not my work. Um, regarding <laughs> your question, um, and I think that epic captures the situation at hand. Um, information asymmetry and for starters, it's something that talks to what they call the agency theory, uh, where in a typical board management situation, you will have an agent and a principal with the principal being the bosses up there and the agents carrying out the role on behalf of the principal. So with a, a typical situation of information asymmetry, um, it's a situation where information is to the recipient or where so that the board, um, and sometimes uh, the board could be at fault because their style of policing could be not right. So what you would, and it happens a lot, I mean, even in the best of places, and which is why you're sitting with lots of scandals, because what you'll have had, including in your spinals, is um, one or another role player in the ecosystem being fed with the wrong information. Uh, or being fed with the right information and not uh, assimilating the information properly. It's a huge problem because you tend to react on what you're fed with. If I get the wrong information from management, that will definitely affect uh, the decision that I take in the end. So for us to cure the information asymmetry, one needs to get to a situation where, and this is where ethics and integrity comes in, where your executive management, and feeds the board with information that's objective, uh, that's sufficient, that's detailed enough, without necessarily feeding of basically everything, and the board making sure that uh, they take the right decisions with the right level of concerns and honesty, so that. Um, at the end of the day, the best interest of the organization um, is what reigns supreme. Uh, if it's your zone, uh, you will always find elements of uh, information asymmetry 
where informa- I mean, information is tailored to suit a different um, path. Uh, I, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more, but here's another dimension that personally we might just share with us. The whole issue of skills and competence. Because um, in some instances we have in African setup, I'm, I'm generalizing here, in most instances, we have board members who are not, uh, who don't possess the right skills and competencies, where there's absolutely no fit for purpose. You could have the best executive who are providing you as a board correct information, but if they, they are not competent or non-regular operations, it's almost impossible for the board to be making correct and accurate information. Coming back to your point around agent and principal, in some instances, it is the, you know, the, the, the principal can be deliberate by seconding individuals at the board level who are not knowledgeable so that they can, they, they can sign off, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, sign off documents or sign off, um, contracts without really appreciating the depth of what is, what, what do you, what do you take on that? Yeah, thank you for the question. And uh, you're talking to a very crucial aspect of the of governing, and uh, that is competence. Um, I can tell you one thing: if you don't have the right competence at either level, and here we're talking about the board level, there's absolutely nothing that you will achieve, and that probably explains why. The competence features prominently amongst the principles under King 4, just as is responsibility, accountability, fairness, transparency. You need to make sure that you have the right levels of competency in an organization amongst your, 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 your role players in the governance value chain. For you to exercise oversight, Unfortunately, you need to show this a certain level of competence. And that's why your boards need to be diversified in terms of skills, knowledge, um, and various other attributes. Uh, because without the right amount of knowledge, how would you oversee uh, people at executive level? Um, I'm not saying... I need a rocket scientist on every board, but for me to have a well-constituted board of ESCOM, I would need one, besides leadership business development, I would need a bit of my electrical engineering skills to come in. And uh, over and above just the academic uh, attributes that come along, you also need a bit of practical experience to be able to tell. And that's how you pick up whether a certain level of information uh, is indeed accurate or whether it's part of uh, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, the same vein at uh, management level or executive level. You need to have people that are able to execute board decisions and your strategy. And for you to be able to efficiently do that, you need the right level of competency for the for an organization to be successful. So um, in the end, your question addresses a critical issue 
without competency, both at board or executive level, there's no way that an organization will be able to carry out its mandate, attain its strategic goals, and be able to, sus- to be sustainable in the short term, medium term, and long term. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the continent is appreciative of these kinds of key performance indicators that that are required both at an executive level but also at the non-executive level. But perhaps we've been elevating this conversation slightly bit higher. Uh, let's look at the, the correlation between uh, the, the quality of state governance uh, uh, and that of, you know, corporate governance, as, as, it, as it were. The reason I'm asking this question is that my understanding is that they, they, you know, the, the quality of corporate governance hinges on the quality of state governance. For an example, if we do not have the state that provide policy and regulatory framework that support governance, the chances are what we see at the state level can cascade down to, uh, to, to, to operations. What's your, what's your view on that? Uh, a, a, a positive correlation between uh, what happens at political level or state level and what happens at uh, a micro-corporate level. Uh, and the answer is not difficult to find uh, or the explanation because corporates don't operate in a vacuum. Um, a, a corporate or a smaller organization or, or an organization is likely to thrive in an in 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 a in a politically enabling environment for my organization to strive i need an enabling political environment the one of um, unnecessary state intrusion and i can tell you now when um, the people are trying to set up businesses in jurisdictions. Some of the first things that they do with due diligence, government really conducive enough as long as I comply with the, the laws, rules and regulations. Um, nobody wants to go and set up a business in a place where there would be unnecessary political interference that can impact adversely on the business. So, uh, back to your question, um, you need an enabling political environment, and the answer is not hard to find. When you look at some of the intent, I mean, in terms of um, investment, market conditions, economic stability, GDP growth, you tend to find uh, equally positive and uh, uh, positive Mauritius of this world. Of course, everything has been affected by COVID. Countries like Mauritius, they are pretty stable countries, and that's why the the lack of political upheavals has allowed their corporate governance uh, landscape to thrive. And same time, when you go to countries, quickly things are not stable. Um, corporates tend to suffer because nobody wants to do JVs with these guys. Nobody wants to bring their FDI mm-hmm. in these countries. And as a result, your GDP mm-hmm. goes suffers. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's something that um, 
we definitely need to up again as a continent. Um, earlier on, we've agreed that there's a positive correlation between state governance as well as a, a governance at an at a macro level. But at the at the state level, we often make an assumption that states have sufficient capacity or competencies for them to uh, conceptualize, implement, monitor, evaluate policies. And that's that's where the biggest problem is. We, we need to get to a point where at the state level there is sufficient capacity. Um, I, <laughs> you know, without sufficient capacity, it's very difficult. Um, and again, you've got a, you know, you've got a bit of a, uh, uh, backing it. Dogs, everybody is rushing for, for, for curfew. Uh, uh, we, we, we close down at, uh, eight until further notice. So the dogs are back. But, um, uh, getting back to your question, you should remember when political appointments are made, they are made for specific reasons. And, uh, without sounding controversial, you've had situations where in your past dispensation, appointments were made, and uh, you couldn't quite make out the rationale behind some of these appointments at finance ministerial level. And you see, some of these things can affect uh, consumer confidence. Uh, uh, the next guy that's wanting... The, the issue here is, um, unfortunately, when appointing politicians... You don't always look at uh, the level of political competency. And as a result, uh, you tend to compromise competency that would in turn compromise your ability to come out with a a proper policy framework as well as um, uh, directives that can stimulate growth and create an enabling environment for corporates to thrive. So, unfortunately, that's what it is. How in certain jurisdictions they navigate around this, and I'm talking about the likes of your Singapore's, where, for instance, from an SOE sector, they make sure that um, they insulate uh, the political players from the economy are very, very successful. It's uh, primarily because there the has been that level of insulation and um, people have allowed the political environment to create an enabling environment for people to thrive. And that takes you to places like South Africa where I don't know whether that issue has been resolved. It's, for instance, people wanting to invest in your mining sector. They will tell you, unfortunately, your policies are just not conducive for me to have well-run businesses. And as a result, that would put pay to your ability to have uh, a good environment for your corporate society. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to raise the issue around um, insulation of economic players from political players because... The two, um, even though they ought to coexist, but um, that that kind of relationship is just a mess. Um, and I'm, you know, we've got obviously quite good um, internal practices 
in, in instances where, which, which, which I, I fully agree with you. To what extent do you think this international best practices are being, you know, assimilated or integrated in the thinking in an African context? Are we winning in that space? Let me be quite frank with you, we have a fair long way to go because, uh, uh, and I like the, the thinking that your president took not so long ago when uh, he appointed that uh, well-resourced uh, and very competent council <laughs> that um, brings to the best-in-class um, uh, captains of industry to serve on that council and carry out some roles over your SOE sector. But, I mean, just look at uh, how much the SOE sector is contributing to GDP in various African economies. Uh, I think we there's lots of disservice to, to our economies coming from the SOE sector. And it's because... We followed wrong policies, adopted wrong laws, and uh, uh, not done the right things. Because I always say governance is um, is fairly straightforward, and we tend to to complicate it uh, in a sense that why don't you understand? You need to appoint the right minister of public enterprises or treasury, depending upon where your your SOEs fall. You appoint proper boards, uh, if possible, bring in nomination committees to make sure that you get the best in class. Uh, in certain jurisdictions, they do transparent board recruitment processes and uh, make sure that these boards appoint good executives. And so flows the chain. And unfortunately, it's not happening a lot in Africa. You have countries that are trying... In Kenya, they've gone as far as uh, uh, developing a code just specifically for state-owned enterprises. In Botswana, they have what they call PIEPA, uh, which is um, an agency that looks into privatization of SOEs. But uh, it's just not uh, coming through. I mean, in South Africa, you've been grappling this with this thing for ages, you've got the right people uh, um, that you just need to bring in the right places. But when I look at uh, a recent situation, I think it's a presser where you have had to bring in one person to usurp what should have been carried out by the board, you start wondering whether we're moving forward or backward. <laughs> so coming back to your question, I honestly think... Um, we're doing disservice to the continent. Uh, our, imagine a situation where your ESCOMs, your SAAs, and all the like were paying good dividends. And during the times of um, Raul Koza at uh, ESCOM, you guys were profitable. Yeah, good dividends. yeah so if you had um, a well-performing SOE sector, in South Africa, for instance, that the, the, the dividends coming out of these entities would have been sufficient to look after, to, I mean, to, to, to be able to earn new surpluses. 
and not get into situations that we're in. Um, but obviously, nobody else is going to get it right for us in Africa. We need to pass correct laws that allow our SOEs to be able to to operate optimally, to be able to generate uh, uh, profits, and uh, so that we're able to declare dividends to the ultimate shareholder, which is the state. But yeah. in certain cases, yeah. It is when you're talking of dividends, when you talk of dividends, it's almost like a swear word because we haven't had dividends um, in a in a very long time. In fact, we have had you know deficits um, that runs into trillions. That is why we, from time to time, having these SOEs, um, you know, uh, you know, we kept in hand asking for bailout. If you have just joined us, we are almost wrapping up uh, heavy with Esther Duanda, who is the seasoned governance and ethics practitioner. He also heads up the corporate governance division um, in, at the Government Institution uh, Pension Fund, which is the largest uh, retirement fund and financial services in Namibia. Esther uh, Luanda is also the chairperson of uh, Namibian, uh, Namibian Airways, giving us a sense of how, as a continent, we have evolved or managing to grapple with all these uh, issues that are giving us headaches. Um, if you've just joined us, you are still welcome to your thoughts around uh, on this on, on this very important issue of our SMS line, which is 34519. The telegram is 061895. And, of course, I welcome your thoughts via the email, which is uh, nimrod at hydrosyllabusa. Um, as we are wrapping up, literally in the next uh, three, four minutes, uh, um are you comfortable that, you know, there is sufficient understanding of where the continent ought to be and 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 most importantly the political will um you know in terms of ensuring that there's investor confidence we operate around the, the market uh, uh you know on the demand side and uh, to a point where we we are crowding in investments um are we confident that we are gravitating towards that particular towards that particular scenario um, I'm not sure. I mean, I've comprehended all your questions. Can you just <laughs> come through again? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm saying how, com- how comfortable or confident are you in that, you know, Africans' leadership are beginning to immerse themselves on these particular issues and are, are beginning to find almost like a correct ways to live up to the best practices that you've alluded to? For an example, I mean, let's look, let's look for an example in how, you know, we manage conflict of interest. Because we know everybody has interest in SOEs, in, in SOEs as well as, um, you know, private organizations. Um, how, you know, if we could, amongst others, manage one variable, conflict of interest, what, to what extent do you think Africans and African leaders are managing these kinds of, 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 uh, interface to a point where we are able to to deliver the economic development. Yeah, to be quite frank, I think there are places where our leaders are doing pretty well, and there are places where I think there is room for improvement, and there are places where I think we're doing... (laughs) There's a lot to be desired and uh, not doing too quite well. And I would uh, single out one country um, and I've always said 
maybe we need a unique uh, sort of democracy for Africa that's different for, from uh, the first world democracy. And I'll, I, I'll illustrate this with the example of the country that I'll give you. Uh, I'm confident, but not quite, because in Africa we tend to go two steps forward and one step backwards. Uh, and I can say this without um, any apology. In the sense that if you look at what's happening in a country like Rwanda, it gives me a very strong sense of optimism that uh, these guys are on a warpath to really get the best out of their country. Um, focus on the key variables. When you look at uh, things like ease of doing business, these things are so that you can register a company within no time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a typical example of what uh, other leaders, I believe, can emulate. I left to mention my own country as well. I think we're doing relatively well. Uh, there is a, a strong political will for us to get to to get onto a very serious uh, uh, growth trajectory. And of course, um, corporate governance would be one such key thing that we've got to get right if we to reach uh, the heights of uh, uh, certain countries in the first world sphere. So on that, what? Yeah. On, on that note, um, actually, unfortunately, we're going to we run out of time. We, we're going to have to end our conversation. There. Once again, thank you very much for your time. If you've just joined us, that was Esther Lunda, who is the um, ethics pra- practitioner based in, the, in Namibia, really giving us um, interesting and thought-provoking ideas on how best to navigate a very complex and turbulent uh, corporate governance environment. Esther, once again, thank you very much for your time. My utmost pleasure, Doctor, for the opportunity. Uh, always a great pleasure. Uh, to listen to you and uh, for affording other Africans an opportunity. Thank you so indeed. Yeah, thank thank you you so much. Much appreciated. There you go. That was Echelonda, who is a seasoned governance and ethic practitioner. He also heads up corporate governance division at the Government Institute, uh, Institution Pension, Pension Fund, uh, which is the largest retirement fund and financial services institution based in Namibia. He also chair, he also chairs the Namibian, uh, Airway Board. On that note, I'm fortunately going to have to leave it there. Uh, say thank you, Tabisa. Thank you, Tabo. Uh, and let's do this again next week. Please be safe and good evening.